Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our obsession with status the costs of social media, the best way to disagree, and several reasons behind the recent college admission scandal. All coming up, changing our culture of contempt. Arthur Brooks. The reason I wrote this book is really two reasons. We want to be more persuasive, and nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. It's just a truism. We also want to be happy because we deserve to be happier people. And things are systematically making us less happy. GDP per capita has been going up for decade after decade. Happiness, well-being is stagnant at best and probably declining. There's no policy that's going to fix this. We all know in our hearts that the problem is in our hearts. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, our interview in the previous podcast with author Arthur Brooks was so interesting that we decided to extend it. Also, we have such a good time doing joint podcasts with our friend Deb Mashek of Heterodox Academy that this is part two. And there's another reason, Jim, and that is that, that we just all have so much to say and the conversation just went on and on and on. That and was a far-ranging conversation. Exactly. And in this one, we're going to be talking about not only love your enemies, but something else that is dear to Arthur's heart, which is the, the huge social problem in America of loneliness. Our guest is Arthur Brooks, the president of the conservative-leaning American Enterprise Institute. And his latest book is Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. And today we're going to focus on loneliness. Arthur has a lot of thoughts on what causes loneliness and also how, how we can fix it. And what you see is that loneliness is increasing in America today. Some people say that it's actually an epidemic. Cigna, the health services company, actually has a whole division of people working on the loneliness epidemic because it's so, it's, you know, depression is such an expensive phenomenon, but it's also just such a, a terrible phenomenon in people's lives. Anxiety, uh, the whole idea that, that nobody knows me. Well, these days, 13% of Americans uh, say that they they have no close friends, you know that that nobody actually knows them. It's an extraordinary thing, and it's going up, and it's especially among young people. And and, and we know why we're we're losing our ability to make friends with social media. There's an epidemic of fear. The big problem is that that, that you know that the, the campus uh, culture wars that are going on are not the are not actually the problem. They're the symptom of the problem, and it's a it's a fear epidemic that kids don't get out of the house, kids don't date when they're in high school. 
Dating in high school is down 30 percentage points since I was in high school. It's extraordinary. How can they measure that, though? They measure that by asking people, did you date last year? And they found that when I was uh, in, in the 1980s, 85% of people in high school, high school seniors were dating, and today it's 56% of high school seniors are dating. And you're not skeptical of that number at all? I'm not really, because I have teenagers, and I was one. <laughs> and and so it's basically between the two cohort groups that I belong to and know the best. And you know, it's, it's funny when I talk about these whether people something are less something like a third less likely to be in love than people were when I was that age. That's that's because people are fearful of relationships. They're fearful of being together. They're fearful of they're fearful of being rejected. And ask my son. My son's a, a junior at uh, Princeton, and I said, "Is this true?" And he said, "No one dates." Well, that's a really dangerous phenomenon. This, the stuff that we hear on college campuses of I reject any possibility of being challenged in my ideology or the way that I see the world, the knock-on effect or the, the parallel effect of that or the, the same phenomenon, a branch on the same tree is I'm not going to date anybody. So I'm curious, what does it mean to be present in the lives of others? So I'm thinking about maybe you with your sons, yeah. you with your coworkers, you with your strangers, you with that person who throws a piece of trash out the window, you know, driving in front of you and you feel contemptuous. At least I do at that moment. I'm wondering how well, do that's we... that's justified. That, yeah, I could be contemptuous there. You're contemptuous of the action, not of the person. Right. There you go. That's a very yeah, important thing to do. It's a, you could be contemptuous of the ideology, but never of the person. And if you can't, we can't make that distinction. It means we're falling prey to people who don't want us to make that distinction because they're profiting from you thinking that somebody else is the other as opposed to simply thinking, I disagree with the way that person sees the world. And, now, and that's being present with somebody, by the way. You can be absolutely present with somebody, even though you, that you hold one of their opinions in disdain, if you say, still, that person's my sister, that person's my brother. I think curiosity also plays a part there. Like, I'm not going to try to convince you you're wrong and I'm right, but I'm just, I'm really curious. How are you seeing the world? Yeah. And whatever you say, wherever you are, I can, I can accept that. It, I don't have to... It's not trying to change me per se. Yeah. If you want to connect with somebody, and this has really changed my life a lot because if I tried to put these things into action, I tried to live the principles in this book before I wrote the book. You had to field test it. Yeah, totally. I, mean, I did a sort of ethnographic study on all the people I disagree with. What you really need to do is to listen deeply for the moral roots of what somebody else is trying to say. And one of the things that I recommend is when you're listening to somebody with whom you disagree, you start by saying, can I see whether or not this is what really motivates you? And go deep, deep, deep to what's written on their hearts and see whether or not it's right. Almost inevitably, if you do that and you get to the point where you say, yeah, that's it, you're going to say, I, I think the same thing. And what we disagree on is different ways to get that. And that is a deep human connection. That is pure pleasure and satisfaction when you get to that point. That's also, you know, you were talking about loneliness and that sense of not being seen. But to go to that, to the, to the heart of what's written on someone's heart, to see that, it's saying, I see you right. and I care for you. That is, that, 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 that's love. That's the yeah. essence of what it means to love another person. You know, to love the other person, St. Thomas Aquinas defined love as to will the good of the other as other. Think about it. It's not, I, I want your good for my sake. It's to, I will Deb's good. I will Richard's good. As I will Richard's good as Richard. And the only way that I can do that is to find out what's written on Richard's heart, to look at it, and, and then to respect you enough to say, I have an idea. I, I got to tell you about my idea to meet your objective. 
<laughs> and that's how we're supposed to be talking to each other, as opposed to going straight to the disagreement. See, see what happens is there's a, a political science theory that says that that you should that there should be common moral the moral moral core in a society around which different ideas compete. Disagreement can be healthy, but it has to be done right. Yeah. So. One of the big mistakes that we make is when people are disagreeing in a, in, a, in a damaging, in a hurtful way, is to say, well, let's just agree more, or let's just agree to disagree. Well, that's wrong. Disagreement's great, because competition is great. You know, it's, uh, nobody objects to competition politically. It's called democracy. As a matter of fact, we demand it. One-party elections are pretty boring, um, or, and, and elections that are not free are terrible. And without a competition of ideas, which is also known as disagreement, we get stagnation and mediocrity. So we don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better. Sometimes we need to disconnect from unproductive debates. Disconnect even from unproductive stimuli. You know, we are truly overstimulated. Uh, the most amazing thing is the extent to which because we can know stuff, we have to know things all the time. We have to know them continuously. And right now. Right now, right yeah. now. And, the, you know, the, the social media is the worst for this because you have access to all the information in the world quickly. And you can get, you know, people that are more or less in your network can be pushing information to you constantly. That's, that's not healthy. That's actually not, certainly not the way our brains were neither developed nor have evolved. We have not evolved sufficiently such that we can filter information at a, at, at a really high rate and, and continue to maintain any any sort of emotional and psychological equilibrium. And the result is we're out of equilibrium. The most extraordinary thing for me as an, as, as an academic is I'll see people at really distinguished universities, people I've, I've, I've admired my whole career, who have stopped writing books, have stopped writing articles, and are simply tweeting 40 and 50 times a day. They've substituted Twitter for their academic corpus of activities. It's actually really, really sad. We don't need to be connected very much. We don't need information to the extent that we're getting it. We certainly don't need to be sharing it. And so one of the ways to be a happier person, and you know, in the end of the day, the reason I wrote this book is really two reasons. We want to be more persuasive, and nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. It's just a truism. We also want to be happy because we deserve to be happier people. And things are systematically making us less happy. GDP per capita has been going up for decade after decade. Happiness, well-being is stagnant at best and probably declining. There's no policy that's going to fix this. We all know in our hearts that the problem is in our hearts. I want to react to what you said about social media. Because right now it seems almost everybody is blaming social media for a lot of ills in society. And I'm wondering whether they're actually right. That There are really great things about social media, and I'm thinking that, that perhaps it's getting blamed for the fact that already we are atomized as a society, mm. and we aren't as communal in the way we design our towns, our cities, our, our ways of life as we should be. Yeah, so... Whenever there's an innovation in the way that we communicate with each other, it starts by with a huge that goes through basically three phases. There's a huge promise. It's a new promise of American life. You know, when the, when the telephone was was, uh, was first developed, the idea was that it was going to make everything easier and people were going to communicate better. A thousand flowers were going to bloom. And by the time it was ubiquitous across American households by the 1950s, there was a huge social problem, which is there are people that wouldn't go out of the house for two and three weeks at a time. It was, I mean, and people thought, and this was phase two, 
which was where this new technology became a substitute for human relationship. People became lonely. They became depressed. They would sit in their darkened homes and only talk to people by the telephone. They would become basically antisocial. So phase two is always, it's the work of the devil. We're in phase two of social media, which is like the zombies are coming to eat our brains. We feel like it's ruining our society, that we're depressed. Maybe we're even killing ourselves. Who knows? It's just, but, but phase two ultimately, I believe, will give rise to phase three, in which we'll use it responsibly. Already, my kids use social media pretty responsibly, more responsibly, certainly, than people 10 years older than them. So some of these problems we're talking about might be solved. Oh, I'm extremely optimistic, Richard. I mean, it's just, I, and I'm not a technologist. I'm not a, you know, I don't believe in the, you know, I'm not a utopian and all that, but I've just seen this pattern again and again and again in technology. And you got to go through phase two so you can get to phase three. It's going to be okay. I want to pivot to something that your own life might inform. And it's something that's in the news right now, this crazy conspiracy of all these rich people to bribe schools and coaches and, and test takers to get their not particularly well-qualified kids into these elite institutions. Right. And it's gotten, Richard and I were talking earlier about this hunger for status that centers around higher education and how that is actually hurting the country. Yeah. And I looked at, you know, your, at your career, you spent a, about 10 years out of academia, didn't finish college, and you went and worked at a trade. It's almost like someone who went and decided to be a carpenter for 10 mm-hmm. years and then went back to, to college. And yet uh, here you are, one of the preeminent thinkers in our, in our public discourse. When you came back, you didn't go to Harvard. You're going to Harvard to teach now. Yeah. I couldn't but you didn't get start out there. there. It turns out the way to get to Harvard you can't get in is to join the faculty. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a great country. So great I, country. I'm fascinated with this circuitous route you took. And maybe that shows that people are too hung up on getting yeah. into Harvard in the first place. Yeah. You know, if you leave people to their own, their, their basic proclivities without any sense of ethics, without any sense of propriety, if we, without any sense of basic humanity, what will make me happy? They'll, they'll wind up putting themselves into status hierarchies. They'll buy, you know, b- becoming a baron of some kind. And they'll, they'll you know, figure out some way to... To, to increase their status in society in this country. And the reason is because we have college for all mentality. And, and the result is, you know, people who are not paying attention to this, they want high status. Their kids are not very motivated. Their kids are not maybe not very talented in academic things. And, and so they basically do what they have to do, which is what people have done for time immemorial, which is buy their, <laughs> buy their kids' way in. It's amazing. How do we get to this place where, where we're so comfortable looking down on people who don't have the same kind of cool jobs that we do. We're classists. We're elitists. That's our problem. We're immoral. That's the problem. We have a tendency to look down on people. We want to find people to look down on. And and we went through a phase in American life where there was a big run-up in the amount of GDP per capita. Um, And so we were able to, to... start consuming more and more and more luxury goods and higher ed is the ultimate luxury good it's super expensive it it is a mark of being of of the ultimate intellectual leisure in a lot of cases status is status is a is a is a terrible thing but that's what we tend to do if i can offer up another hypothesis um this role of or this this issue of needing to be validated and seen and it's i i wonder about status and and being willing to buy one's way and buying one's child's way into a college, if that's also a way of making sure that child is 
seen. Well, I mean, in point of fact, we know that when somebody has a college education, that life can be easier for the kid. That's not not completely true, actually, because if you have a skilled trade, you'll never you know, miss a meal, it turns out. But there has been this... And you'll probably have a lot less student loan debt. You'll have a lot less student loan debt. You'll start working early. There's a lot of good reasons to do that, but most people don't know that. There's a there's an information lag. It's a very interesting thing because my own kids are very different in this way. I had a kid who really loved studying and, and went to a, a fancy university. And my second kid, he's really, really gifted with his hands. And he wanted a job working outside where he could work hard. And he's he, he bypassed college and is working as a wheat farmer in Idaho. And He's a carpenter's apprentice during the during the winter, and he is a man fully alive. And here's the weird thing: he went to a prep school, suburban Washington, a place in Bethesda, Maryland, a really nice prep school. They they got him ready, and nearly all of his friends went to college. Um, a bunch of his friends now from his graduating class are kind of struggling in college, and their parents will come up to me and said. How'd you do that? You know, how'd you, how'd you find that job? <laughs> you know, I was like, he found the job. You know, he was super motivated and he knew what he wanted to do. And it was a question. My only job was to say, you know, you, you have a responsibility to be honest. Your responsibility to be compassionate. Your responsibility to find the way that you can serve the most. And if 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 um, if being a making he's making these cabinets. I mean, it just blows my. I'm so proud of him. I see the stuff that he builds. It's like there is zero way I could have ever done this in my life. I have no idea how he knows how to do it. And he can shoot. And he knows how to fly fish. And he he drives a, a four hundred thousand dollar combine. He's he's harvesting sixty thousand pounds of soft white wheat per hour. I mean, it's just I gotta tell you, it is amazing. And by the way, he's making money. <laughs> That's a great way to end it. Arthur Brooks, proud of his kid. Oh yeah, <laughs> so proud. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So we had a lot of things to say about why you should love your enemies and not just tolerate people you disagree with. And then also the broader questions raised by social media and, and the problem of loneliness. You know, the point that came through that I really liked, and I'm talking going back, back across episode one and episode two, was that we're not saying everyone should just get along and be civil. And he's not saying that we should all agree. And, Deb, I know this will resonate with you because the whole idea of Heterodox Academy is it's okay to disagree. We're not trying to all reach a compromise. We're trying to find a way to respect people enough that we can have really intense conversations about disagreements that are productive, that get us somewhere, that help us learn and maybe change our thoughts or maybe change somebody else's thoughts, but do it in a way that's productive. And for me, one of the big insights, and um, it gives me a lot of hope when we think about tribalism is ingrained. It's part of our nature. Love is part of our nature. And when Arthur was reflecting on, you know, our, our genetics, our biology is not destiny, that we're in charge of how we respond to situations. And when we feel that flare up of emotion, when we feel the contempt coming up, that we can still pause it, that we can delay our response time and, and turn to a more constructive way of engaging with other people as people. Yeah. This is not necessarily about changing your mind or, or thinking any differently about politics and about the role of government than you do or I do already. Jim and I disagree about a whole bunch of things but the 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 idea is that we can we can still go off and 
have a glass of beer after it. Yes, I really recommend this book. I mean, one of the things that's been so great over the last four years of How Do We Fix It? We're coming up on our 200th episode is getting to meet these these thinkers uh, and really engage with these ideas. It makes me optimistic to talk to people like Brooks and John Haidt and, and Francis Fukuyama and so many other thinkers. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Banks. And I'm Deb Mashek with the Heterodox Academy. And thanks for joining us. We're production of Davies Content. We make digital audio podcasts for companies and nonprofits. If you're interested in making a podcast or doing it better than you do it now, then let us know. We're at DaviesContent.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.